Stay hungry, stay foolish. I truly believe today's episode will forever change how you think about your own thinking. Stunning new scientific discoveries about your brain's functioning show that all cells of our bodies are affected by our thoughts. Our guest is a renowned cell biologist and describes the precise molecular pathways through which this occurs. Using simple language, humor, and everyday examples, he explains how the new science of epigenetics is revolutionizing our understanding of the link between mind and matter and the profound effects it has on our personal lives and the collective life of our species. We welcome author of The Biology of Belief, Unleashing the Power of Consciousness, Matter and Miracles, Bruce H. Lipton, PhD. Welcome to the show. I am so glad to be here today because uh, we do have some very exciting and self-empowering information, and that's what the world right it really needs it right now because all you can see outside is chaos, and we have to really get our power back so we can take control of our lives. Bruce, it's a great honor to have you on the show. In the book, you praise change makers like Polish astronomer Nicholas Copernicus and French naturalist Jean-Baptiste Lamarck. But you yourself have overcome so much resistance, ostracization by peers and industry professionals in the past to emerge as the pioneer in this field of epigenetics. For that, this show and I offer you a massive tip of the cap. I am so appreciated, you know, and, and the reason I am so motivated to keep going on my path was, well, first of all, I was 23 years ahead of conventional science and understanding the nature of that new field of research called epigenetics. And being 23 years ahead of their recognizing it, that meant I was 23 years a crazy man <laughs> until all of a sudden they recognize it. Now it's like, oh, yeah, we knew that already, but it's a wake-up call for the public. That's the most important thing. Now, they can talk about this all they want in the ivory tower of academics, but if it doesn't mean anything unless the public really understands the power of what this new science is all about. And I'm so glad you're giving me this opportunity because this is what people need right now. As a scientist, you break it down in common language for common folk like myself. Your initial focus on research on cloned stem cells, how you discovered that the cells had a mission and a purpose would be great to share. Let's start off with a conventional belief because that's what everybody has already been programmed with. There's a belief that uh, genes, the DNA molecules in our cells, control our lives. At first, the DNA was thought just to program for the physical body that we have. But later, they started to add other things that DNA also controlled our behavior and DNA controlled our emotions. And when people learn this, there's a problem. And here's the problem. The idea is that A, as far as we know, we didn't pick the genes we came with. B, if we don't like the characteristics, we can't change those genes. C, the story is that genes turn on and off by themselves, which leaves you out of the equation. Conclusion, we are victims of our heredity. And this is what people perceive. They perceive like, oh, there's cancer running in their family. And the first thing is, oh my God, I have some gene that's going to give me cancer or uh, cardiovascular disease or Alzheimer's or whatever it is. Um, the belief is that genes are controlling their life and they don't control the genes, which makes us victims of our heredity. 
And this is a fear-producing concept because if you come from a family where there's disease running in the family, your life is preoccupied, at least unconsciously, with the belief that you're going to be a victim of whatever that disease might be that's manifesting, and there's nothing you can do about it as far as we know. Now, that's the belief uh, that I was teaching in the medical school back in the early days. In fact, I started my research on stem cells in 1967. And what was so interesting was that there were so few people in the world that even knew what a stem cell was back in those days. So I, I had a unique opportunity to work on stem cells. So first, we need a little definition. What is a stem cell? Well, point is this. You look in the mirror and see yourself and you see a single entity looking back and you say, oh, well, I am a single living organism. And then I go, well, that's kind of an illusion because a human body is made out of 50 trillion cells. The cells are the living entity. The human body, by definition, is a community. So when I say my name, Bruce, it doesn't represent a single entity. Bruce is the name of a community of 50 trillion cells. Well, the relevance about that is that every day cells die just because of normal aging or damage, and we lose hundreds of billions. I, you know the numbers I talk about, 50 trillion, hundreds of billions. These numbers are so vast that it's hard to contemplate. What does it really mean? I mean, if you wanted to count to a billion, it would take you few years if you started off one, two, three, four, five to get there, just how big that number is. So point, body is made out of 50 trillion cells. Every day we lose hundreds of billions of these cells, normal attrition. However, there's a logical question that comes. It says, if I'm losing hundreds of billions of cells every day, how long can I stay alive? And the answer is very interesting because as much as we're losing every day, we're replacing those cells. I say, oh, wait a minute. My cells are dying, but they're being replaced. I say, well, who's replacing them? I say, well, they're called stem cells. And I go, so what is a stem cell? So now let's clear that up. A stem cell is an embryonic cell. And the moment before you were born, if I do a tissue biopsy and I point out in the microscope, oh, here is an embryonic cell from this fetus. And I say, one minute after this baby is born, I do the same histology, find the same cell, but now I call it a stem cell. Point is simple. Once you're born, you're not an embryo, so I changed the name from embryonic cell to stem cell. But they are embryonic cells because their function is to replace the hundreds of billions of cells that die every day. And if you're here and listening to me right now, then by definition, you already have stem cells, because if you didn't have stem cells, you would die off pretty quickly. So point, what was my research? Well, stem cells are embryonic cells. They can become anything, muscle, bone, skin, brain, whatever. And so uh, my research was on uncovering the fate of what stem cells are going to be. So this is called cloning. And what I did was take one stem cell, put it in a Petri dish all by itself. It divides every 10 or 12 hours. So first there's one cell, then 10 hours later there's two, and 10 hours later there's four. It doubles and doubles. At the end of a week, there are about 30,000 stem cells in the petri dish the most important point is all of the cells in the dish came from one parent cell so that means i have about to about 30,000 stem cells but they're all genetically identical because they came from the same parent now what i do and this is the experiment <laughs> is I separate those cells and put them into three dishes. So each dish, all the dishes have genetically identical cells. But what's different is this. 
in the laboratory, cells grow in a tissue culture dish in a fluid we call culture medium. And that's what we synthesize in the lab. We, we synthesize the culture medium, put it in a Petri dish, add the cells, and the cells grow in it. Question is, what is culture medium? And simple answer is, it's the laboratory version of blood. So if I grow human cells, I look at what human blood is made out of, make a synthetic version and put it in a Petri dish and grow the cells in it. If I grow mouse cells, I look at mouse blood composition, make mouse growth medium. So here's the point. Since I make the growth medium in the lab and synthesize it, I, I have the liberty of changing some of the composition a little bit. So I make three different versions of human cell culture medium with slightly different chemistry. And now I feed each of the dishes with a different version of the uh, growth medium. Let's call them environment. The growth medium is the environment. So I have environment A, B, and C, and genetically identical cells in each environment. The point is this, in environment A, the cells form muscle. In the other culture dish with environment B, the cells form bone. And in a third culture dish with yet a different culture medium, environment C, the cells form fat cells. And all of a sudden it says, well, wait a minute, because I'm teaching students, especially medical students, the fact that genes control life. And yet this experiment challenges that because what it says is, all the cells were genetically identical, but the fate was different for each cell. So what made each cell have a different expression? The answer was they grew in a different environment. <laughs> and why this was so critical, because at the time, it was the genes were thought to be controlling life. And my research revealed, no, wait a minute. The genes don't make that decision what the fate should be. It was the environment in which the cells were placed. That's what determined the fate of the cells. And you go, wow, that's okay, interesting experiment. The genes did not control the fate of the cells. The environment controlled the fate of the genes. And then you go, wow, that's, that's interesting. You put cells in a plastic dish and feed them different culture medium, they become different things. And I go, okay, now let's connect this to the human right away. And that is this. As I mentioned, a human is not uh, a single entity, but it's, uh, a human is 50 trillion cells under your skin. Funny but true statement is a human is a skin-covered Petri dish. And the significance of that is underneath our skin, we have 50 trillion cells. But then I say, yeah, but what's the culture medium in your body? I go, well, that's your original culture medium, blood. So your cells in your body are in an environment with culture medium, your blood. And here's the point. Doesn't make a difference on the fate of the cell if it's in a plastic dish or in your skin-covered body dish? And the answer is, nope. The fate of the cells is really dependent upon the culture medium. In the plastic dish, my synthetic version of blood, but in your skin-covered dish, you have the real blood. And I say, so why is this relevant? Because I say the blood chemistry that's circulating through your body is nourishing the cells, creating the environment, and also determining the genetic activity, just as it did in the plastic dish. So I say, well, wait a minute. The chemistry of my blood is controlling the fate of my cells. I go, absolutely. Now comes the most blow-away insight, and it says, well, wait, <laughs> In the lab, I'm the chemist that creates the culture medium. And I say, well, what in your body or where in your body is the chemist that controls the chemical composition of your blood? And the answer is the brain. 
The brain is the chemist. It controls what kind of uh, things like hormones or growth factors or emotional chemicals and nutrition. The brain is determining the chemistry of your blood. And then I go, okay, last but most important question then is this. So what chemistry should the brain put into the blood? Because the chemistry of the blood is going to control the fate of the cells. And then the answer is completely blow away because the answer is this. The chemistry that the brain puts into the blood is a complement to the consciousness in your mind. In other words, if you change your consciousness, you change the chemistry of your blood. And in turn, that chemistry of the blood is going to uh, change the genetic activity. And all of a sudden it says, well, wait a minute, then the fate of my genes or the fate of my cells, and actually, is not determined by the genes. But in the end, it's determined by the picture in my mind, because the brain is going to translate that picture into chemistry. Now, I'll give a simple example. If you're sitting there, all of a sudden, your eyes are closed, and then you open your eyes and you see someone you love. The mind has a picture of love. The brain translates love into complementary chemistry. Uh, for example, when you're experiencing love, the brain releases into the blood a dopamine, a chemical that gives us pleasure. The brain releases oxytocin into the blood. That's the chemical that bonds us with our lover. The brain will release vasopressin, a hormone that makes us more attractive so that our partner will stay with us longer. And very importantly, when you're in love, the brain releases growth hormone into the blood. I say, so what is the consequence of this cocktail of love chemicals? And the answer is health and vitality. If I put those same chemicals in my tissue culture dish with my cells, my cells grow beautifully, luxuriantly. And then I say, so what is the result of that chemistry of love when it's released into your body's blood? And I say, you get healthy and you're in pleasure, you have joy. And all that's because of the chemistry that's added to the blood culture medium. Uh, and that's why when people fall in love, they're so healthy. Uh, people say, oh, look how they glow. They're so in love. And I go, that's not an accident. That's the result of the chemistry from the brain going into the blood affecting the genetics. That piece really resonated with me. The fact that the love changes the chemicals also changes how you see yourself. And I thought about it's not just love for another or receiving love for another, but it's love for yourself. So how you look at yourself or how you see yourself in your mind. And what this brings to mind is the amazing function of telomeres or telomeres that you talk about. And that amazing story that it's literally like it gives you runway or extra runway for your life. This is an absolute truth. This is so profoundly important because the chemistry that's released by the blood enhances your, not just your vitality, but your longevity. At the end of your DNA strands, your genes, there's an extension of DNA. It doesn't code for any body character. It's just an extension of DNA, and it's called a telomere. And you say, why do you have these extensions? And the answer is very important. Because when you copy the DNA, there's a protein that is involved with copying the genetic code. It moves down the DNA like a train moves down railroad tracks. And as the DNA, uh, as, a, as this uh, protein uh, that's copying the DNA moves down the DNA. Behind it is the new copy of the DNA. So I said, so what happens when this protein train gets to the end of the DNA molecule? 
And I say, well, now it's sitting on that extension called the telomere. I say, so what's important? Now, here it is. The DNA protein copying mechanism, when it gets to the end of the DNA, is actually sitting on the last piece of the DNA. But as I said, the new DNA is after that protein moves over the, you know, down the tracks. So I say, yeah, but then the piece that this DNA uh, copying protein, this train, is sitting on the telomere at the very end of the DNA. If this protein moves a little further, it falls off the track. So I say, so what's the point? And here it is. The copying enzyme will copy the DNA, but when it gets to the very end, the piece that the enzyme is sitting on cannot be copied because uh, it's only copied if the train moves over it. But if it stops at the end on that little piece of DNA, can't copy it. So I say, so what's the relevance? I say, oh, the new copy of the DNA is a little shorter than the original copy because I couldn't copy the last piece of this telomere. So I said, so what does that mean? I said, well, every time the cell divides and you copy the DNA, the new copy is always a little shorter than the original version because of that protein sitting on the end. So the uh, biology of cells creates telomeres, an extra piece of DNA that if it loses a little piece of the telomere every time the DNA is copied, it's not a problem. But if you copy the DNA too many times, then what happens is there's a point where uh, the telomere is not being you know, replaced because every time you copy it, you lose a little piece. And I said, well, what happens when you run out of telomere? And I said, well, then that little protein train stops at the end of the DNA, but now it's sitting on a gene blueprint, a code. And I said, well, what's the result? I said, well, it doesn't copy the little piece of the code. I said, oh my goodness, then if you divide the cell too many times, you run out of telomere, and then the copying enzyme starts cutting off the DNA code, and that results in aging, disease, and depression. So they say, yeah, as you get older, presumably there's a point where your stem cells divide so many times that now the next new stem cell uh, has a shorter piece of DNA that cuts off the genetic code, and this is where problems begin and aging is the result. So it used to be thought, oh, well, the telomere is a precise length and that there's only so many divisions before it runs out. And therefore, it was calculated, well, how old can a human get? Because at what point will the stem cells, uh, the DNA run out of the telomeres? And it turns out about 100 years old. So everybody was happy. Yes, humans live about 100 years old because that's how long the telomeres are before they run out. Uh, and then you age and die, except something new happened here, Aiden, and this is so profound. It was found that there's an enzyme that increases the length of the telomere. Well, if this enzyme is active, then you don't run out of telomere. You always are replacing the piece that's lost. I say, yeah, but what would be the result? And I say, well, then stem cells don't age. As a matter of fact, they can keep dividing and keep dividing and keep you alive. And all, all of a sudden, I said, well, then why do we have a problem with aging? And this is the important part for the audience. This is very critical. The enzyme that creates a telomere, has a name called telomerase, is working in the right environmental situation. If you're healthy, if you're happy, if you're not under stress, the 
telomerase enzyme keeps working and you can live longer. But if you start to get under stress and your life is hard and then you have a consciousness that says, oh my God, I can't put up with this life anymore. There's so many pressures and so many problems. Stress is like that. Stresses that come from being in a non-supportive relationship, uh, let's say there's a disharmony in the relationship or violence in the relationship, that individual, if you think about their subconscious mind, says, I don't want to live through this anymore. Guess what? In adverse environments, the telomerase does not work. So that means if you're having a tough struggle life, you're not really going to increase the length of the telomeres, which means you're going to have a shorter life. And all of a sudden it says, oh my goodness, then if we were happy and and living in harmony and joy and all these wonderful things, I said, then the telomerase is still working and the telomeres keep growing longer instead of getting shorter. How long can we live? And the answer is a minimum of 150 years, minimum. How come we're all dying at a younger age? And the answer is, because our subconscious response to life is not happy. We are under stress. We're under all kinds of problems, uh, uh, not being supported, not being happy, not being in love. These are the things that will stop the telomerase and as a result, shorten our lifespan. So if we want to live longer, then the whole secret is to be happy and enjoy your life. And that becomes very difficult because love, let's use that word love in big words, right? big letters, love. Love is the nourishment that gives us longevity. When people are in love, now, and I want to emphasize as well, does love mean being in love with another human being? I say, no, not necessarily. Love means doing something that gives you joy and happiness, that you just so love to do it that you get lost in it. People grow of gardens and they love to get their hands in the dirt. A love for gardening also enhances telomerase. You have a pet and you love your pet and all that. Well, that enhances your telomerase. Being in love, but not necessarily with a person, but being in love with your life. If you love your life, you live longer. Now, all of a sudden, and this this is personal now, uh, Aiden, this is really the critical part out there for people to understand. I love my life. <laughs> well, do you love your life? Because love is really based on our subconscious programming. And most all of us have grown up with parents that criticize us in an effort to get us to conform so that we were you know, behaving in the right way to be a member of a family or a community. And if you're not behaving right, then parents sort of yell at the child and criticize them. That's not good enough. Who do you think you are? You don't deserve this toy or whatever it is. The parents are saying that because they, they don't like us as kids. I say, no, no. Parents act like coaches on a sport team. If a player isn't doing well, the, the coach doesn't come up and say, oh, please, please try harder. No, the coach comes up and says, that's not good enough. Come on, work harder. You can do it. You, know, you don't deserve to be on this team if you can't keep up. The coach is sort of like yelling at the player. And I go, yeah, because that causes the player to engage a, a better effort, to work harder. Parents have the same idea. If the child isn't doing well, you criticize them. Come on, that's not good enough. You can do better than that. Who do you think you are? And parents are acting like a coach. And now here comes the problem. If a child is under seven years of age and has that criticism, 
The problem is a child under seven is not operating from a consciousness that understands why the parent is saying that. An older child understands if I'm that kid on the team and I'm not doing well and the coach tells me, come on, you can do better than that. I realize the coach just wants me to work harder and I'm going to do it. It's conscious. I understand. If a child's under seven and the parent says, come on, you can do better than that, then all the child is recording is not good enough. I'm not good enough. I have to do better. It it doesn't it doesn't really the child doesn't understand the meaning. It just recopies the words. So if I go back over my programming as a child before age seven, it turns out about seventy percent of the downloaded programs that I got from my parents, family, and community were criticisms. And I say, so what? I say. Well, then my subconscious, if I could review the programs in my subconscious, 70% are saying not good enough, you know, not lovable, not worthy, not deserving, all these things. And you go, well, okay, that's in my subconscious. And then the big issue that we all have to wake up to is the subconscious is a database of programs that we download. As compared to the conscious mind, which is the creative mind with wishes and desires. So, Aiden, I say, well, tell me what you want out of your life. If you give me an answer, it's a creative answer. I want to be healthy. I want to be happy. I want to have a great relationship. I go, that's great. That's a creative answer from conscious mind. Scary part. And that is the conscious mind controls our lives. Science has now recognized about 5% of the time at the most. 5% of the time, our conscious mind is controlling our behavior, our characteristics, and the conscious mind has all the wishes and desires and all the things that we want. I go, great, but that's only 5% of the day that we're actually moving toward wishes and desires. And the reason is this, when we are thinking, the conscious mind, which uh, imagine the biology of your body as a vehicle, The conscious mind has its hands on the wheel and is driving the vehicle toward wishes, desires, and aspirations. However, when we are thinking, the conscious mind lets go of the wheel because thinking is an inside job. So the conscious mind, instead of looking out your eyes and looking at the world, what's going on, the conscious mind goes inside because that's where thoughts are. You know, for example, I could say right now, uh, tell me what you're doing on Sunday at two o'clock. If you don't have a schedule in front of you, I say, so where are you going to get the answer? And you say, oh, I'm thinking about the answer. I say, ah, so that means your conscious mind lets go of the wheel, goes into your head and starts to say, what am I doing on Sunday, et cetera? Well, here's the point. If the conscious mind lets go of the wheel, driving the vehicle, and let's put it into a real situation, you're driving a real vehicle down the street, and all of a sudden you're thinking about, oh, when I get to the store, I'm going to get X or Y, and you're thinking, well, if you're thinking, then conscious mind's not driving the car anymore. Conscious mind let go, and you're in your head thinking, and I say, well, geez, did you get into an accident? I go, no. For people who recognize this, they look out the window and they say, oh my God, I haven't paid attention to the road for the last few minutes because when I was thinking, my conscious mind wasn't paying attention. Yeah, but you didn't hit anything. You're still on the road. You're driving the right speed limit. Who's driving the car? And here's the most profound point. The moment you are thinking, conscious mind with wishes and desires that was driving you toward that destination, let's go of the wheel, goes inside and is thinking, The subconscious 
takes over the wheel. The subconscious is autopilot. It knows how to drive a car. In fact, it's a million times more powerful in the conscious mind in processing information. It's a better driver. <laughs> so the idea is this. When the conscious mind is thinking, the subconscious mind takes over the job. Now, here's the character problem. The subconscious mind was programmed the behavior by our parents, our family, and our community in the first seven years. And scientists have recognized about 70% of the programs we downloaded are disempowering, self-sabotaging, limiting beliefs. So all of a sudden I go, wow, when I'm conscious and paying attention, my nervous system is heading me toward my wishes, desires, and what I want out of my life. But when I'm thinking, the subconscious and its programs take over my life. And here comes the problem. If 70% of the programs are negative in the subconscious, then where do you think my vehicle, my body is going? It's not going toward wishes and desires for sure. It goes to all the negative kinds of criticisms that we received as a child. If you were programmed not good enough, then guess what? The function of the mind is to create that reality, not good enough. You will unconsciously sabotage yourself and in the end of the day go, yeah, I guess I wasn't good enough. It was just the program that did that. So point, 95% of the day we are in thought. Conclusion, 95% of the day your nervous system, your biology is being controlled by subconscious programs, most of which are negative and disempowering. And then somebody's out here in our audience right now, Aiden, is saying, yeah, but I would see if I was <laughs> self-sabotage behavior. And I go, here's a story that I've given in lectures for 30 years. It's the same story. I can't change it because it's a great absolute truth. And it works like this. You probably had a friend and you knew your friend's behavior very, very well. And you knew your friend's parent. And one day you see your friend has the same behavior as their parent. So you, you know, you want to tell your friend and you go like, hey, Bill, you're just like your dad. And I say, then you back away from Bill because the first thing Bill's going to say, how can you compare me to my dad? I'm nothing like my dad. The audience laughs and I understand why is because almost all of us have had this experience. And then I say, well, this is why I keep telling the story, because the point of the story is profound. Here's the point. Everyone else can see that Bill behaves like his dad. The only one who doesn't see it is Bill. And you say, well, how explain that? And I say, yeah, here's how I can explain it. Simple. Bill is thinking 95% of the day. So his conscious mind is not observing what's going on in the world. His conscious mind is inside his head with thought. His subconscious is now driving the vehicle. But because Bill is not observing his behavior because he's thinking, then whatever behavior is coming out, Bill can't see it, but everybody else can. And since most of that behavior is from the programming, which is 70% negative, then during the day, 70% of the day, Bill is sabotaging himself and he's the only one that doesn't see it. And then I go, the most important point about that story is this. We are all Bill. Every human out there is Bill in that we run our lives only 5% of the time with what we want, wish, and desire. And 95% of our behavior is being controlled by the subconscious program because while we're in thought, it's the autopilot. But because we're in thought, 
we don't see the behavior and all we see is the result. And I said, what does that mean? I say, look, you wake up in the morning with conscious mind and control going, today, I'm going to be successful. Today, I'm going to be healthy. Today, I'm going to find a relationship. Whatever you want, that's your wish. And then you go out during the day and you work all day and then you come home at night and it's sort of like, well, no, I, I, I didn't succeed. I didn't get healthy. I didn't find a love. Uh, I didn't do well on the job. This is the whole problem. What are you left to believe at that moment? At that moment, you go, gosh, I wanted to be successful today and it didn't work. The universe is against me. Nature is against me. Fate is against me. You feel you're a victim. I'm a victim. Why? I wanted success. It didn't work. And all of a sudden you say, the universe is, uh, is sabotaging me because I wanted success and so it's not me. And then I go, the problem is this. Your subconscious was tearing you down all day long, 95% of the time, but you, like Bill, were unaware of seeing it. And as a result, we acquire the belief that we're victims. And yet the truth is this, we unconsciously created that problem. We are responsible for the character of our lives. And yet, because we don't see that invisible behavior when it's operating 95% of the time, we think, it's not me. <laughs> I, I really wanted to be successful. Our consciousness, when it's positive, takes us to where we want to go. But when our consciousness has negative programs, it takes us down the wrong road. And then I'm saying, from the biology, how does it work? Because consciousness in the mind is translated into chemistry by the brain that complements that consciousness. And that chemistry is released into the blood, which is the culture medium. And that chemistry in the culture medium directs the genetics. And all of a sudden, I said, oh, my God, we were creating our own problem. People are going, oh, that sounds interesting. And I go, no, no, here, let me give you this piece of it. very important information, and that is this. The most valid science on planet Earth is quantum physics. Quantum physics has been the most tested and verified and truthful of all the sciences because one of the primary principles of quantum physics is consciousness is creating our life experiences. And all of a sudden I say, oh my God. The biology and the quantum physics now both say exactly the same thing. Your consciousness is manifesting the chemistry in the blood, which in turn controls our behavior and our genetics. Change your consciousness and you change the character of your life. Now, that comes down to the point that, yeah, my, my belief is controlling my life. If I believe I'm successful or I believe I'm not successful, either one of those beliefs will manifest whichever one I believe. Uh, Henry Ford, the founder of the Ford Motor Company, made a very famous quote, and that is this, whether you believe you can or whether you believe you can't, you're right. And the point about that is, our beliefs are controlling this. So when you look at your life right now, if you're struggling, if you're not finding uh, those wishes and desires that you have in your conscious mind, it's not the universe that is creating the problem. We have to recognize that unconsciously our subconscious programs that we acquired in the first seven years by observing other people, that's how you got those programs, are downloaded into the subconscious and then operating 95% of the day. So 
The problem is we're not really controlling our lives. Most of us have seen the movie The Matrix in the video store. Matrix is classified as science fiction. I go, no, 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 no. Matrix is a documentary. Every one of us has been programmed. That's a true statement. Every human has been programmed. That's how we got off the ground. The character of the program determines the character of our lives. Just to give an example, for 100 years, science has recognized something called the placebo effect. I go, what's that? I say a person is very sick. A doctor comes up and says, oh, my God, here's the greatest new medicine. It just came out of the research lab. It is the medicine. This is the most uh, you know, advanced medicine for your issue. It's going to heal you. And you believe that, doctor, and you take these pills and you get better. And then later you find out it was a sugar pill. And everybody goes, oh, yeah, that's the placebo effect. And I say, what is a placebo effect? What does it really represent? I said, it was the belief in the pill that healed the individual, not the pill. The pill was a sugar pill. And I go, okay, placebo. Yeah, that's the positive thinking about the action of this pill, which turns out to be a sugar pill. So the healing didn't come from the pill. It came from the positive belief about the pill. So belief healed you. And everyone goes, yeah, yeah, that's a placebo effect. And I go, absolutely. It's 100 years of how the mind controlled your fate uh, and not the pill. And everyone goes, yeah, positive thinking, placebo effect. And now I need to emphasize this more than anything. Negative thinking is equally powerful in controlling your life as is positive thinking. Except negative thinking can take you the other way. Negative thinking can cause you to have any disease. Negative thinking can actually cause you to die. If you believe you're going to die and you truly believe it, you're going to die because belief is controlling the biology, positive and negative. In science, the negative belief is not called placebo, it's called nocebo. Why is it relevant? Because science has already demonstrated that my fate is based on my consciousness. When I have positive consciousness, I can heal myself. When I have negative consciousness, I can kill myself. It's like all of a sudden it's like, wow. Love is the greatest healing emotion in the world. Love is harmony. Harmony is health. Well, then how come so many people are not healthy? And now here's what it turns out. And I can tell you from personal experience because um, I've worked with, uh, in uh, workshops where we do belief change. And one of the questions that we ask the group to test for is to test for the belief, I love myself. Over 80% of every audience will not test positive to, I love myself. I go, why? <laughs> why don't we love ourselves? And I said, I already mentioned why. Because in the first seven years, we download programs that we acquire from other people, and especially about who we are. And when it comes to programs about ourselves, I said, most of them are critical programs, criticizing us, not good enough, not smart enough, not worthy enough, blah, blah, blah. Holy crap. With those beliefs in your subconscious and with your subconscious working 95% of the day, then that means 95% of the day, we are self-critical. Not good enough, not smart enough, not worthy, not lovable, whatever it is. And that's 95% of the day. It's not coming from our 
conscious mind, our wishes and our desires is coming from a program, but it's 95% of the day. And therefore, we as a group don't love ourselves because we're self-critical. Where do we get critical? Oh, because the program <laughs> criticized us. That's where we got it. And I go, wow. And I say, well, what effect does that have? I say, well, I'll give you the biggest effect. If you can't love yourself because of these critical programs and someone comes up and says they love you, <laughs> then you in your subconscious mind is looking at that person going, wow, they have no quality control because I know I'm not lovable. <laughs> so how can they love me? And what would we do in that situation? We will sabotage that relationship. And when that person ultimately leaves, then our mind will say, yep, you see, I told you you weren't lovable. And that person left. And now you feel very assured in the truth. I know I'm not lovable. <laughs> they left. And the reality is, no, we created that unconsciously. It's time for us to wake up. And the wake up action is simply this. We have been programmed. Every human has been programmed. You might say, why should I have been programmed in the first seven years? I'll give you a simple reason. Let's say you buy a brand new computer and it's got a great operating system and you turn on the computer and the operating system boots up the computer. Now I say, do something. You say, well, I have to have a program, a write program, a draw program, a spreadsheet program. I say, what if you don't have a program in the computer? And then I say, it doesn't do anything. It can start up, but it can't do anything. I say, point. When a baby's brain is developing, it has an operating system. But if there's no program in the baby's brain, then the operating system doesn't have anything to do. So nature creates the first seven years of our lives to download these programs and that these programs ultimately will shape the character of our lives. So whatever we downloaded is going to run 95% of the day and manifest our life. So here comes the problem, and let, let's help some people with it, and that is this. When did this programming occur? I go, it started even before you were born. For example, if a mother plays music through her abdominal wall, you know, puts a speaker near her, her belly, uh, as you're developing as a fetus, the music that is being heard can be learned by the fetus. So the moment the baby is born, you play that music, the baby will totally respond to the music. Or if the father speaks to the fetus as it's developing through the abdominal wall, when the baby is born, the moment the father opens its mouth, the baby will know which one is the father because that's what the baby learned uh, while it was still a fetus. So learning started before you were born. And then it goes through the first seven years. So you could put programs in there so that when you become conscious, which is the activity of the brain around age seven, then the conscious child now has programs to run its life. And then 95% of our life comes from these programs. When the conscious mind is running it, then we have wishes and desires. And when the subconscious mind is running it, we play the programs and most of them, the criticisms. And so I go back to the movie, The Matrix. Yes, we all got programmed, but there's an interesting part in The Matrix. Uh, Neo is given an opportunity to take a red pill or a blue pill. And in the story, it says, if you take the blue pill, you wake up and you're back in the same old world you always have been in. But if you take the red pill, you get out of the program. Well, let me tell you, 
If you're out there and you're beyond teenage years, you probably have already taken the red pill one or more times. And you go, what do you mean? I say, you have taken the red pill and got out of the program. And you know what the result was? Amazing. So I say, well, okay, when did I take this red pill? You ready? When people fall in love, like head over heels in love with somebody, there's a period where that love is, is just beginning. And this period is called the honeymoon effect. The honeymoon is what? Well, your life could go blah, 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 blah every day. And then you meet this special person. And 24 hours later, life isn't blah, blah, blah. Life is, oh my God, it's so beautiful. I'm so in love. The environment is beautiful. The food's beautiful. The music's wonderful. Even the crummy job's not so bad. I'm so in love. And I go, how did this love period where, what did you create? Let's look at it. In the honeymoon, it's tantamount to creating heaven on earth, where you wake up going, oh, I'm so in love, and I love my life, and, and I have a relationship, and I'm loving and loving and loving. And I go, how did a life that was blah, blah, blah every day in 24 hours turn into heaven on earth? And the answer science has revealed is so amazing, because it says when we fall in love like that, we stop thinking. We stay what is called mindful. Meaning your conscious mind is not wandering in thought when you're around your partner, your new love. Your conscious mind is being present every moment because it's like, wow, I'm so excited to be here. I'm keeping my, my mind on the present moment. I'm not thinking. And I go, that's the red pill. Because if you stop thinking, then the conscious mind with wishes and desires keeps its hands on the wheel, not 5% of the day. But over 90% of the day when you're in love, you're operating from conscious mind, which has what? Wishes and desires. And I go, so what did you manifest? Heaven on earth. Uh, and all of a sudden, it's like, oh, my God, that's the red pill. I stopped playing the negative programs, and then immediately my life turned into heaven on earth. And then I go, and unfortunately, that honeymoon effect doesn't really last a long time. And the reason is simple. Well, it works because during the honeymoon, consciousness keeps its hands on the wheels and drives towards wishes and desires. But at some point in the relationship, life gets busy. You got a job, you got chores, you got obligations. And I say, so what? And I say, you start thinking. Uh-oh, why? Because the moment you start thinking, you let go of the wheel with your conscious mind, subconscious mind steps in and starts playing the programs. I go, so what? And I say, well, since most of those programs are negative, what do you think your love partner sees? Well, she didn't see your programs during the honeymoon because you were operating from the person you want to be, your wish and desire. I'm the lovable, great person for you. I'm the most wonderful partner for you. And you become that, okay? But the moment you start thinking, conscious mind lets go of the wheel, subconscious steps in, starts playing the programs that you got, 70% of which are negative. Your partner has never seen these negative programs up to now. Why? Because the honeymoon kept both of you in the conscious state. But the moment you start thinking, the subconscious autopilot steps in, starts playing some of those programs. Many of them are negative, as I said. Consequence is very simple. Your partner looks at you going, who are you? Where did that come from? Why? They never saw the negative side. Not until you started thinking. 
And all of a sudden I say, why is it relevant? Because if you have a negative behavior that starts showing up, your partner has to go, wow, that wasn't part of the honeymoon. That, that That's really not that great. But then your partner has to make a choice. Well, uh, depending on the behavior, can they compromise and go, well, okay, let's put it in my case. Sometimes Bruce uh, has some negative behavior because all of a sudden he starts playing some of these programs. And my partner has to go, do I want to stay in the relationship? And partner might compromise and say, well, most of the time Bruce is pretty cool, but sometimes he play, you know, he's got this bad behavior. She, you know, my partner doesn't know that I'm doing the subconscious bit and I don't see it. Just my sub, my partner sees it. And if she can, she'll compromise going, okay, I just recognize Bruce is an idiot sometimes. And, <laughs> but other times it's really great. But then the more thinking I do, the more subconscious programs are being displayed. And if some of them are really negative, even my partner will go, geez, I can't put up with this. I mean, some people are abusive, but they're not abusive in their conscious mind. They're only abusive in the subconscious programming that they receive by observing parents and family. Uh, and all of a sudden I say, so why is it relevant? I say, if it's such an abusive thing, then my partner who is seeing my behavior decides that the relationship can no longer be and the relationship ends. And then the issue is this. I, in that part of my relationship with my partner, was like Bill. I never saw the negative behavior. Only my partner saw it. And so uh, I throw out a negative behavior. My partner looks at me and, and criticizes me. And I go, what are you talking about? I, I'm not that evil person you're mentioning. I'm, I'm Bruce. I'm the cool guy. <laughs> Except Bruce, when he's playing subconscious programs playing his dad, for example, and that wasn't a great relationship with my mom. So now I'm playing my dad's behavior. My partner's like, wow, that's pretty crappy. And this causes the honeymoon to end. And with depending on the negative programs that start manifesting, uh, the relationship is strained to the point that it could even break. And yet my participation was all through subconscious. I didn't see it. All I saw were the arguments that I was being criticized and I'm thinking, I'm not that person. I don't know what you're talking about because I didn't see my negative behavior, but my partner did. I don't know if you've heard the analogy of you walk into a kitchen and the sink's overflowing and what do you do? Do you start mopping or do you turn off the tap? Because this really popped to my mind when I was reading the book because you mentioned ways we can deal with this. We can do both. We can start mopping and we can turn off the tap. The tap can come in the form of conscious parenting and conscious conception even. But as adults, a lot of CEOs and C-suite entrepreneurs, etc., listen to this show. What can we do? You talk about some of the reprogramming we can do, hypnosis, CBT, etc. But what are some immediate actions that we can take? Okay, the, the first thing is this. When did the programming start? I said, it was already working when before you were born last trimester of pregnancy. And so the issue that we have is if I ask anybody out there right now, what's your program? Well, the point is this. You can't see the program. It's in the subconscious, and it works when you're not paying attention anyway. So all of a sudden, it says, oh, my God, I, I don't see my programs. I don't know what my programs are. You know, if I say, Hey, you were being programmed at zero. Can you tell me the program you got? No. Okay. You were programmed at one. No, I, don't, I didn't see that program. You were programmed at two. Nope, I didn't see those programs. So I say, and this is the issue. 
how do I know what my programs are? Because most of the fundamental programming occurred before I was even aware or conscious of programming. Okay. So point is this, almost all of us don't have any real idea of what our programs are because they were put in to the system before consciousness was activated. So I say, oh my God, then we're in trouble. I don't know what the program is. And I say, no, no, here, here's the answer. 95% of your life is coming from subconscious programs. So that means your life is a printout of your programs. So all you have to do is step back for a second and now look at your life. And here's how you can look at it real quickly. The things that you like that come into your life, come into your life because you have a program to bring them into your life. But, and the here's the big capital, but those things that you wish for or desire, but you have to work hard for, you have to stress over it. You have to put a lot of effort into it. You're sweating over making this reality that I wish for. I say, why are you working so hard? And the answer inevitably is the programs that you have do not support that wish or that desire. And your conscious mind is trying to make an effort to override the negative program through your work. I'll work harder at it. I'll put more energy into it. I'll sweat over it. I'll make it happen. I say, wow, you're working real hard. The reason you're working so hard is inevitably your program is not supporting that conclusion. That's why your effort's so great. So then I say, well, you want to know your program? Everything that comes into your life that you like comes in because you have a program to acknowledge that. But everything you desire, but you have to work really hard to get there, the reason you're working so hard is your program doesn't support that destination. So you already know what your program is. It's the opposite of what you want. I want to be in love. I'm searching for love. I'm not finding it. Program, you're not lovable. <laughs> That's as simple as that. So now I can say, oh my God, I wanted to be successful in my job. I wanted to have better health. I want to have a great relationship. And all of a sudden say, if those are things that you struggle with, your program is the complete opposite of that because it's not supporting it. So now I say, oh my goodness, apparently I'm not lovable. I want to be lovable so I can bring love into my life. Then I say, well, you want to change the program. And as you brought up, this is where the biggest problem that we face in our world today as individuals comes from, and that is this. I can see what my program is. I'm not a lovable person. Uh, I've been programmed to be self-critical, not smart enough, or whatever it is. These are the programs that are playing. And I say, I want to change the program, and it's difficult. And I say, here's why it's difficult. When I said the mind is controlling biology, I brought up the fact that there were two parts to the mind, conscious mind, which is connected to our unique identity, our spirit. Our conscious mind is unique for each individual. And I also mentioned subconscious mind. I go, well, subconscious mind is just like a record playback machine. It downloads behavior. You push the button and it plays it back. A lot of people used to say, oh, the subconscious is where evil comes from. I go, listen, the subconscious is a cold machine. It's sort of like a CD recorder, good or bad, just records. I say, ah, but the programs that are recorded can be good or bad. And the point about it is this, 
Let's don't blame the subconscious. Let's just understand it's the programs where we have a problem with. Then you say, I want to change the program. I go, ah, now this is where the issue comes in. The two minds have different functions and the two minds learn in different ways. So let's look at the function. Conscious mind is creative. That's the one that has imagination. I'd love to be healthy. I'd love to have a great relationship. I want a a wonderful job. I I say that's, that's good creative thinking. Subconscious mind's not really creative. The subconscious mind is actually the habit mind. There's not all bad things. Uh, for example, when did you learn how to, to walk? Before you were two. Have you ever had to relearn how to walk? Well, for most of us, no. I could be like I am now, 75 years old. I go, so what? And I say, I'm still using the same program of walking I got when I was two. I didn't have to relearn. And all of a sudden, it's like, wow, so that's a good thing. I say, yeah, great for the program. But what about a negative program? I go, ooh, yeah, I got negative programs in there. I say, so wait, conscious mind is creative, and it can learn in any different way because it's creative. A conscious mind can learn by listening to our conversation. A conscious mind can learn by reading a self-help book. A conscious mind can learn by watching a video or even just going, aha, I have a new idea. I can change conscious mind. But subconscious mind is the habit mind. If you have a habit, you don't want it to change every day. I learned how to walk when I was two. Thank God it doesn't change. I'm still using the same program that I got when I was two. So habits resist change. Yeah, but what if you have negative habit? I go, it resists change. So if we want to change the subconscious, how can you do it? Well, There are two natural ways, because these are the ways that the subconscious learned in the first place. First way, number one, is the first seven years, how did we download all those programs? Because the brain was operating at a lower vibration than consciousness. When you put wires on a person's head, you could read brain activities called electroencephalograph, EEG. So I could read brain activities that measure in vibrations, theta, is the vibration that the child is in predominantly for the first seven years. Theta is actually below consciousness, a vibration that's higher, it's called alpha, that's calm consciousness, and an even higher vibration is called beta, which is like schoolroom-focused consciousness. So I say, oh, for the first seven years, my brain was predominantly in theta, it's below consciousness, but it's hypnosis. That's how you were able to download so many different behaviors as an infant because you didn't have to learn them. You just opened your eyes and recorded them as they were coming in. Hypnosis. So if you want to change some of the programs, hypnosis is a cool way. And then you say, do I have to see a hypnotherapist? I go, no, cool part. Because as I said, the vibration of the brain represents the status. So when you're at work, you're at a higher vibration beta. When you come home, and you start to relax in the evening, the vibration slows down to alpha, which is called calm consciousness. But at the moment your consciousness disconnects, you fall asleep. The moment you fall asleep, the brain drops into the next lower vibration called theta. So while you're awake and calm, it's alpha, a higher vibration. But the moment you fall asleep, the instant you fall asleep, your vibration now drops to theta, I go, that's the record vibration. So here's the point. I can put earphones on my head at night as I'm going to bed. And I play a program that offers my wishes and desires. 
While I'm still awake, I can hear the program play. But the moment I fall asleep and consciousness disconnects, alpha just shuts off, now I'm in theta, you're wearing the earphones, consciousness can't hear the program because it just fell asleep. But theta, the next phase, is hypnosis. So whatever was being played through the earphones is now going straight download into subconscious. So if you put the earphones on every night and play the program, you can reprogram the subconscious using self-hypnosis where you get into theta and you have the earphones on with a program that's being downloaded into subconscious. So self-hypnosis is one way and you can get the programs uh, like for love, health, good job. Basically, a lot of bookstores all sell these. Are, they're called subliminal programs because they're below consciousness when they're working. Uh, and you can do this every night, change a program. It's a repetition process. So the first seven years, I'm downloading behavior because my brain's in theta hypnosis. But after age seven, I'm in consciousness. So theta is not the, the system for learning, but I learn new programs how to drive a car. <laughs> you, you learned that after you were seven years of age or play a musical instrument. How'd you learn that? How'd you drive a car? How'd you learn a sport activity? In every case, the new programs that come in after age seven come in through a process of repetition, practice, habituation. If you want something, to, you want to learn how to play an instrument, you have to practice. You practice every day. You practice, practice every day. And at some point, you could pick up the instrument without looking at the score or the music book and just play the instrument because you practiced it all the time. Okay, that's a new program. So I say, oh, so after age seven, you can put new programs in, but through a process of habituation, repetition, practice. And that means... Whatever you want to be true, you have to behave repeatedly as if it was already true. I love it because there's a, a new age a saying that always makes me laugh, and it's called fake it till you make it. Let's say I'm not a happy person. My programs and my subconscious do not support happiness. So I say, so what do I want to do? I say, every day. I want to say as many times during the day as possible. Anytime I could think about it, I say, I am happy. I am happy. All day long, you could be miserable. But I say, no, no. <laughs> you put in to yourself, thinking to yourself, I am happy. I am happy. You're faking it. But by repetition, that's how you got a habit. You did it through practice. So the more you repeat, I am happy. I am happy. The more you repeat it, there's a point where the subconscious, based on the repetition, will create a new habit. I am happy. So guess what? One day you wake up, you don't even have to say, I'm happy. You woke up happy because 95% of your life coming from the subconscious includes the program, I am happy. And no longer do you even have to work on being happy. You're automatically happy. That is, uh, there is a reward for the practice. And that is, once the program is installed, which takes the effort, but once it's installed, no effort is needed anymore because now it's an automatic process, like it's been working up to your life at this point automatically without you even thinking about it. If you have a program, I am happy, and it's downloaded, <laughs> you never have to say I am happy again because the program automatically says I am happy and you are happy. Bruce, I'd absolutely love to have you back on again. There's so much. I didn't even get near 
I was actually asking you the questions with my cells. I hope you felt that as we went through the show. Where can people find out more about you, your workshops, your books, etc.? I have a great website called BruceLipton.com. Very simple, BruceLipton.com. On there, there's so many articles, videos, interviews, and there's even a, a section under resources about how to change your belief if you're not living the life you want. It's just a matter of rewriting the subconscious programs. Brilliant, Bruce. And I'll share that. And there's a multitude of YouTube clips and interviews with you out there as well. Author of The Biology of Belief, Unleashing the Power of Consciousness, Matter and Miracles, Bruce H. Lipton, PhD. It was a great honor to have you on the show. I am so honored to be with you, Aiden. Thank you so very much because you offered me a chance to talk to all those people out there listening. And these are the people, the cultural creatives that are looking for answers outside the box. And we offered some right now because the world needs us to think outside the box so we can save ourselves. Thanks so much, Bruce. Thank you. Thank you. 